join me this morning in opening up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, a book written specifically to Hebrew Christians, the very early stages of the church's development. As we've been studying verse by verse through this book, we now find ourselves in chapter 6. Chapter 6, I'll pick up the reading again, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, if you'd follow along as I read. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning as we ask our Lord's help with this subject matter today. Father God, Lord, you superintended the writing of these words. You prepared the man to whom you gave these words to write. You prepared the words in just the right way, through the skill set of this man, to be put on the pages that would then become Scripture. These are your words given to your people in that day. But now come to us with the same power and the same might and the same glory and the same value, the same pertinence, the same applications and we pray today to learn from them. Now, Lord, superintend your will upon us and do as you do. Teach us, for it is you who taught us of Christ and it is you who teach us how to follow Christ, in whose name we pray, Jesus' name. Amen. been on a constant path of studying maturity, being encouraged and even chastened to the mature level, along with these Hebrews, who by now should be teachers, yet are not, have need of being retaught, yet he does not reteach them the elementary principles, as we have read here in verses 1 and 2. He leaves those behind and goes on to the most, at least we could say one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture to clearly 
elucidate, to clearly understand, to exposit or interpret. This is mature subject matter. So if you are here for the first time this morning or just very first times, guess what? This is swimming lessons and they've just kicked you into the deep end of the pool. But I promise if you keep swimming hard, you'll keep your head above water. And the Lord, with the Lord's help, we will help you to understand this in its proper context. We're going on to maturity. However, you might find this title, the top of your notes, surprising. The title of this message is, It's Hopeless. It's hopeless. This is a hopeless passage. There is no return from this condition or position that whomever he is describing has as a reality in their lives. Verse 4, for it is impossible. Verse 6, all the stuff that came in the middle, simply descriptive, it is impossible if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. It's hopeless. Now, I have some introductory teaching to go through. First, in the area of hermeneutics. The area of hermeneutics is the study of Bible interpretation. How do we interpret the Bible? I want to bring to you a very important hermeneutical principle that you do well to hold and to know and never violate. Never violate this principle. It is the non-contradictory nature of Scripture. The non-contradictory nature of Scripture. Scripture was written, written by God. God who cannot lie. And God who cannot lie also cannot contradict himself in what he writes. You might write a paper. You might get it back from your instructor and they say you've contradicted yourself. This is not that uncommon. You are human. God is not human. He is not like you and me. He makes no mistakes, has no lapses in error, is non-contradictory by his very nature. He is absolute perfection. And so we call this hermeneutical principle, in general, we call it the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith which means the non-contradictory nature of Scripture. God does not write anything in one place that he contradicts in another. So from this we learn that there is one unified, consistent, harmonious system of faith that we believe in in the Bible. It is absolutely consistent. If that is not true, I'm going home. This isn't worth it. It's all subject to questions, and there is nothing to follow then but more question marks. But this has not questions, it has answers. Also note that the analogy of faith, or the non-contradictory nature of Scripture, is this. If you put it in negative terms, it is this, that no point 
when correctly understood, will contradict another. No point when correctly understood will ever contradict another point that God made in the Bible. The people that have other interpretations of the passage that we're studying today face for themselves the violation of this hermeneutical principle. Let me demonstrate. For example, in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, I shall not read them all. You should read them all when you get home. It explains to us that men are justified by faith without works of merit. Not by works which they've done. They're justified by faith without works of merit. They are justified by faith apart from works. Abraham believed God, it says, and was accounted to him for righteousness. Yet another point that's made in the Bible in the book of James says that those who are saved by faith without works of merit will indeed then have works. Where they will manifest works that are the fruitful manifestation of real faith. Works do not save. Faith saves. Once faith is saved, it produces works. One goes with the other. One follows the other. Works follow faith. But if you think you have worked your way into heaven, that's not faith. So, you see then, James 2.24, that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. There's no concept in the scripture that all you have to do is at one point say, I believe Jesus, and then never ever follow him, never ever do what the Bible says. As Jesus even said to those who followed him, you call me teacher and you call me Lord, why then do you not obey the things which I command you? If he is your teacher, you would follow his example. If he is your Lord and master, you would do what he says. If your faith is that he is both teacher and Lord, then you will obey his commands. The end. Non-contradictory. It does not teach two things. It teaches one thing and another that flows from it. It teaches faith and works that follow from that true faith. Part one of my introduction. Now let her be part two of my introduction. Apostasy. Those who take our alternate views than the one I'm going to teach to you this morning look at this verse and they say, well, the, the Greek word for apostasy is not in this text. I agree. It is not. However, the Greek word that is used that we have then here translated to fall away, assumes they're falling away from some sort of attachment to Jesus, the truth, and the church of Jesus Christ, which, of course, is the defining feature of apostasy. You can't be an apostate unless you know the truth. Let me say that again. You cannot become an apostate until you know the truth of the gospel. Until you have, if you will, back up in here into our text a little bit, those, unless you're one who was once enlightened, who has tasted the heavenly gift, verse 4, 
have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. A nearness, a closeness, an understanding, a following even very similar to many others who are true people of faith all around them. Even to be part of the church, this is a warning to those who are close and who know truth and yet fall away. Apostasy is to fall away from. One who falls away from an intellectual adherence to Christianity. There are many people who say, oh yes, I believe Christianity is true. And you know what every Christian should say to that person when they say, I believe Christianity is true. And then you must say, well, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ that he has saved you? Have you indeed placed all your faith there? If you come to an intellectual type of mental ascent, yeah, of all the things I've looked at in the world, all the religions I've maybe studied and found, and in walking close along with this, I find this to be the most logical, which of course it is. But logic does not save you. Faith in the logical presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that saves you. You must believe it all. You can't just say, well, I think it's most right. You believe it all. This is describing those who fall away from some sort of an intellectual ascent, some understanding about, but yet no adherence to, real faith. There are those who are under pressure from the world system, and there is a world system that fights in contradiction to the truth of the Bible and the Word of God. They're under that kind of pressure from the world system. They become afflicted with trials and temptations, like the seed that falls along the wayside, springs up at one point, but is then choked out by the cares of the world. Afflicted with trials and temptations, and who tire, listen, who tire of the strain of trying to follow Jesus in their own strength. If you try to follow Jesus in your own strength, let me tell you what, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. It's impossible. You cannot follow Jesus from a position of sin. You have to be regenerated and have the Holy Spirit within to empower you to follow Jesus. Your own strength, and in their own strength, they turn away from the church of Jesus. And listen, this is a key point to understand and become antagonistic to Christianity and Christ. So apostates know the truth, and then they attack the truth and the church and Christ, and you, real Christians. In Matthew, Jesus said in chapter 24, when he's preparing them for the end and the end times, he says, then they, these people of the world, will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. You want to be a Christian? There it is. We do not entice people to Christianity telling them their life is going to be wonderful and everybody's going to love you because you're so neat. 
Jesus said, they hated me, they'll hate you. Therefore, love one another. The only people that will really ever love you back in this world, Christian, are fellow Christians. And if you're not good at loving each other back and forth, you know what? Hmm. This message might be for you. Many will be offended, Jesus said. Will betray one another. And will hate one another. Then many false prophets will arise and deceive many. When I was a teenager, they said this was happening. And I thought, you know, I think it is. When I was in my 30s, they said this was happening. I said, I, you know, I think it is. And now I'm... And it's happening. In increasing measure in my short life. Many false prophets rising up. Many betray one another and hate one another. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says this. Chapter 2, verse 2. He encourages these Thessalonian believers not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter. Listen, and as if from us. There are some people who are writing letters trying to fake them out that they were from Paul. Do you think we're the first era that had New Testaments coming out? No, in the first stages of the early church, people were trying to pretend they were apostles and wrote letters. Well, you think they weren't smart enough to think of that? Only now we have the Gospel of Thomas, etc., etc. No, it was happening. It was happening in that day, as though from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Paul says, let no one deceive you by any means for the day, this is the day of the judgment of Christ, the day of judgment. The day will not come unless, listen to me, unless the falling away comes first. Unless the, fall, the falling away from what? From what? Our passage says if they fall away, fall away from what? Unless the falling away comes first, Paul says in Thessalonians, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The falling away in the church of Jesus Christ must happen first, and then will be the revelation of the Antichrist, that son of perdition. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4, and then the church that will hear this in verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Some will depart from the faith, which means they never had faith. They were walking with people of faith. They weren't of it giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. This is bad news. It's hopeless. It's hopeless. Yet there is the doctrine of perseverance. 
There is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We've taught on it before in our brief hiatus between when we've had Hayden and Talon preaching. We spoke about the perseverance of the saints. And I leave you this, and I gave it to you full form, though in very small font. But, you know, get a magnifying glass. You can take it home. It fit on two pieces of paper that way. It's just what I had to do. Perseverance is from a verb that is frequently translated continued steadfastly. Unbelief, apostates fall away. Those who persevere continue steadfastly. Another translation is devoted or constant. The idea of perseverance is the idea of persistence. That Christians continue to persist following and keeping on in patient endurance. This, of course, is essential, particularly in the face of real persecution. When there are those around who are doing what Jesus said they would do, hating you, reviling you, speaking evil of you. It's an essential virtue in the face of persecution. Yet believers were not to assume, listen, yet believers were not to assume that they were persevering alone. So if you think you're persevering all alone, that's working. You're doing it yourself. This is a group effort, and the group is you and God, you and Jesus Christ. But let me point this out and read what I have verbatim as I've departed a few times and you may be now lost. Perseverance was an essential virtue in the face of persecution, yet believers were not to assume that they were persevering alone, but that they, listen, were participating, were participating by faith in God's preservation. So when we participate in the preservation of God, He's preserving us, we're working with Him in anticipation. It is an anticipatory act of his promises fulfilled in the future kingdom and the eternal state of God. Why keep on keeping on is the question. See, that's what we used to do in the 70s. We kept on keeping on. You can take that and use it. You can make it popular again in Christian circles. We don't quit. We keep on keeping on, having faith in God, no matter what crumbles around us. No matter what we think might be the powers that be, we are living as people of promised future hope. I've told you this many times. If you think you will have full fulfillment in this physical life that you have now, Christian or non-believer, let me tell you what, that's hopeless. He did not promise this. Now you will have, in this life, Jesus said, tribulations. But in the future, if you persevere, if you're patient, the hope will come. Chapter 11, Hebrews, we're not there yet. This is the bad news. It's hopeless. But the good news is coming. It is impossible, verse 4. 
for it is impossible. Verse 4. Verse 6, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Hopelessness. This morning I want to show you four features of an immature faith. I call it an immature faith because maturity is the constant theme of this part of our book. And it will travel throughout. True faith is a mature faith. And it is a maturing faith. It grows up constantly. Immature faith is a faith that has never been faith. Easily shaken and falls away. Four features of an immature faith that result in a hopeless or impossible condition. The state of hopelessness where it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. We shall see the hopeless face of unbelief that pretends faith yet has none. Number three in your notes, Roman numeral three, a mature recounting of hopelessness. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. It's hopeless. Four features of their hopeless face. These who are written about in chapter 6, 4 through 8. The first feature of their hopeless face is pridefulness. Pridefulness. We look to our text this morning. It says, verse 6, If they fall away to renew them again to repentance... Why is it impossible? Since. It's impossible since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. Pridefulness. They crucify again the Son of God. First off, let us note they pridefully usurp God's role in the crucifixion. Do you know that God had a role in the crucifixion? God was part of the crucifixion? Yes. The Bible tells us clearly that God the Father was part of the crucifixion of His Son Jesus Christ and He oversaw it all. But these, these apostates, these who were once part of the faith, attempt to crucify again. The Son of God. Just even think of that. Let's do it again. Let's hang Jesus on the cross another time. They crucify him again in their pride and they usurp the role of God, his sovereignty, his authority, his plan, his purpose. It is man's prideful power play to usurp God's plan or to turn God's plan to their own uses. In Matthew chapter 20, we read of man's prideful power play. Jesus himself tells his disciples in preparation for the reality of what would happen, predictively, verse 18. Jesus says, behold. You know what, you know what behold means, right? means, behold, 
That's what it means. But it has that emphasis. You just can't say, behold. No, 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 that, that's not behold. Behold! Look at this. He says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. You mean like all of us? Yeah, all of us. We are going up to Jerusalem. Listen, there's a we and then there's a me. We, Jesus and his disciples, are going up to Jerusalem. And now to the me part, and the Son of Man will be betrayed. Did anybody see this coming? Should anyone have seen this coming? They all should have. Jesus said he would be betrayed. And notice he even tells to whom he would be betrayed. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will welcome him with open arms and say, glad you're back. No, and they will condemn him to death. They will condemn him to a crucifixion of death and deliver him to the Gentiles. So yeah, he could, he could have stopped there and said, oh, they're going to condemn him to death. But no, he tells the whole story. They will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles and the hands of the powers that be of the day into the hands of Rome. And they will mock him. To mock him and to scourge and to crucify. And if we ended there, that would be hopeless. And on the third day, he will rise again. He will not be crucified again. But they crucify him again. They usurp God's role. They try to take it over. Military terms. When there was a city with a wall. When there was a city with a wall that was thick and deep. When there's a city with a wall that's thick and deep and properly manned with the weapons of the day, with the soldiers of the day, with the troops of the day. Though that city be surrounded... It's considered impregnable. It's impossible to breach. In war situations, when a commander decided to do the impossible, and there were many who did this, who would charge an entrenched, walled, defended position the men that they would send in the first charge were labeled. They were given a name. Those of the forlorn hope. In Vicksburg, during the Civil War, there was just such an attack. 150 men in the forlorn hope charged. 81 died is a decimation in numbers. It is so terribly rare to lose 50% of any group of attacking troops. Super rare. Odds really are in your favor to live. 
but not in a forlorn hope because it's impossible. Those who attack God and try to take over his plan to crucify Jesus again are attacking the impregnable position of God's bastion of strength and power and defense. This is Jesus, the Lord Sabaoth, his name. You know what Lord Sabaoth means? The Lord of hosts. God's position is the best, most well-defended position in the world, yet the faithless attack him and attempt to take from him his power and position. But that cannot be done because God's plans are unstoppable. It doesn't matter how they come at him. It's hopeless. To crucify the Son again is hopelessness. In Matthew 26, verse 18, we see God's overarching timing, the unstoppable nature of his plan and purpose for Christ. 26 and 18, and he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, Jesus said to his disciples. The teacher says, Tell this man, the teacher says, My time is at hand. What? If you read your Gospels carefully, you will find that Jesus at oftentimes would tell the people that he even did miracles to, now don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Why? Because my time is not come. And then all of a sudden, this year, before the Passover, Jesus says to his disciples, go. You'll find a man in the city telling to prepare. Passover for me and my disciples because... My time is at hand. Now it's time. No matter the power players in the world of that day, even when they tried to take him early, what did Jesus do? He passed through them. But when it was his time and they came to arrest him, what did Jesus do? He said, oh, come on, Peter, put the sword away. Here, is this your ear? Okay, we'll put the ear back on. It's my time. Just in case you wonder who's in charge. You cannot usurp the power of God over the crucifixion of Christ and crucify him again for yourself. He did that himself for his plan and purpose, his own expression. Even in John, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, of the world, that its works are evil. You must go to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. In pride, man fools himself. He tries to control God. And thinking even in their crucifixion that they have done the great deed that they put him away. All they have done is fulfilled scripture, which even in the prophet Isaiah said this, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise his son. Which, of course, many of you who are astute in your Bible references would be taking this all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in God's curse to the serpent. And God said to the serpent, 
of the Messiah that would come, the seed of the woman, that you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. It pleased in God's good timing the Lord to bruise him, and he was put and put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin. Ultimately, God is using the unbelieving pride of men, even these men and these women that we find in Hebrews chapter 6, turning away from the Lord and usurping the power of God and trying to crucify again the Son of God. God is using it. It's pride. They try to usurp the role of God in the crucifixion, but secondly, they try to pridefully adopt the role of the crucifiers at the crucifixion. I found this startling in my study. They crucify again for themselves. Don't just crucify them again. They crucify again for themselves. There is a selfish, prideful element that wants Jesus dead again. That wants to turn the crucifixion to their own purposes. Let me say something to clarify. We are not talking about Christians here who have doubts about their faith. Because you know what? That's all of us. If you're honest, but we're in church, so none of the rest of you even bothered to try and raise your hands with me, did you? You didn't do it. Well, there's one. I see that hand. Because every single one of you have had doubts, and sometimes with good reason, when you're not walking with the Lord as you should, when you've capitulated to some sin or some way or some thought, and you're thinking, I'm out. That's not what we're talking about, though this passage has been used too often to say that, to assume that. But that is impossible. Because the characteristics and the character of these people are being revealed to us. They crucify again for themselves the Son of God. That's not when you have doubts about your position because you're human and at a point of weakness. It's not because you're battling sin. And thinking, well, I should be better about this. I'm regenerate. How come I'm not always in the state of victory? Well, that's Romans chapter 7 and 8 for you. I can't go there, but read that. These are those who become antagonists of the church of Christ, even of the very crucifixion, the crux of salvation. They become enemies, and they attack they charge the gates of heaven and they try to pull God and Christ down in a forlorn hope of personal, prideful victory. That's different than when you have doubts and you fall into a, a sin. In Psalm 69, we read in verse 26, and this is a messianic psalm. This is the psalm where the psalmist says, the zeal for the Lord has eaten me up, has consumed me. 
and that he feels intimately all of the attacks on the Lord. It then becomes messianic in such a clear place as verse 26 of Psalm 69. It says, before they persecute the ones you, you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. This is speaking of what they will do to Christ and those who follow Christ. He then prays in the psalm, add iniquity to their iniquity. These can't be saved people. And then, and let them not come into your righteousness. This is an imprecatory part. He's calling down judgment on those to whom judgment is due. These can't be Christians. These can't be believers in the Old Testament fashion. Verse 28, he says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. It's hopeless. It's hopeless. Let me give you some examples of those who did it in history past so you can recognize them in history present. I take you to the high priests and the Sanhedrin. The time of Christ's death, John chapter 19, verse 6. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! They were crucifying Christ for themselves, for their own selfish purposes, for their own ability to hang on to their political and their religious powers in the land. This man who is rising to power, this man who is healing, this man who people are calling the Messiah, this man who they are casting their cloaks in front of as he rides into Jerusalem and saying, Hosanna and the highest, he must die to clear the way for us. That's the character of these people. Pilate even said to them, take him and crucify him. You take him and crucify him. I found no fault in him. But what did they answer? The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die. Why? Because he made himself the son of God. Which only breaks the law if you aren't. But if you are the Son of God, no law is broken. Truth has been told. The religious leaders, and too often the religious leaders, even in our own country, in our own world, would seek to crucify again for themselves, their own political purposes, their own religious power, their own money, their own fame, their own fortunes. And use the crucifixion of Christ again and again. It is nothing better to get a person thinking that they're going to lose their salvation regularly. And to get back right with God, they got to come to you, buy the book, put the money in the plate, so I can fly off on my airplane someplace else. It's a gig. It's a scam. It's corruption. Even Pilate even the ignorance of the world system of unbelief stands condemned as using the crucifixion of Christ for themselves. Pilate tried Jesus. He just said, I find no fault in him. In John 19.10, we go on, then Pilate said to him, said to Jesus Christ, 
Are you not speaking to me? He'd ask him a question. Jesus didn't answer. Pilate in his exasperation says, Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you? Jesus answered the power that be, the Roman governor of Judah, behind whom all the might of Rome was garnered. Jesus said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. The greater sin was the Jews. The greater sin was the leaders, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees. Those who brought him before Pilate. Notice he did not say Pilate has no sin because what did Pilate do? Pilate tried again to get out of it. But he found it easier politically to just kill this Jewish upstart who people are calling the king of the Jews. And in this scene, even the crowd of the Jews surrounding the cross become those who crucify again for themselves or use the crucifixion for themselves. In John 19, we read, now it was the preparation day, verse 14, of the Passover. And about the sixth hour. And Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king! But they, the crowd, cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then they delivered him then he, de he delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. It was just easier for Pilate to just get rid of him. Use crucifixion. That works. You say, how could that happen? I hope you do watch the news a little. I hope you do see that sometimes it's politically expedient just to remove people, to take their lives so you can retain power, whether they're guilty or not. But these ones will kill Jesus again to keep themselves in position. Hmm. Pridefulness, the next view of their face is boastfulness. Boastfulness. You say, well, doesn't that sound like the same thing? Well, it is. One's a derivative of the other. But you can be prideful and silent. Keep all your pride in your heart and never speak what's there in your pride. I'm better than you. <laughs> you just don't say it out loud. But when you become boastful, now you're letting it out. A verbal face of this kind of unbelief. Back to our text, verse 6 says, If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and now this, and put him, put Jesus, to open shame. They put the Son of God to open shame. This is pride that is related to the vocalizing of their hatred of Jesus Christ. 
They hopelessly deny, point one, under boastfulness in your notes, they hopeful, hopelessly deny the sufficiency of the cross. The sufficiency of the cross. Listen, Hebrews 9.11. But Christ has come as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. He has come not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all. And having obtained eternal redemption, the sufficiency of the cross is denied. The security of the salvation, the eternal redemption purchased by Jesus Christ with his own blood the sufficiency of the cross moved to the side. There are people who again and again think that there's a necessity to go back and be born again again. And again. To be saved again and again like as if the blood applied to a believer runs out. It's no longer eternal. It's only for a short period of time until you blow it. The sufficiency of the cross puts the cross to open shame. It says what God said in his word and what Jesus said he would do didn't get done all the way. We got to do it again. We got to fix it. Or it didn't work. Or it doesn't work very well it didn't work for me. It doesn't work without faith. It is a boastful sort of independence, a no need for the cross sort of understanding. These who have walked so close with the word, even with the church of God. In Philippians 3, Paul speaks of them in this way, for many walk. This is a pattern of life. That's where the walk word is important. It's not just a single instance. It's a pattern. For many walk, of whom Paul says, I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, how can you be an enemy of the cross of Christ? You deny that what Jesus did on it was sufficient to redeem people, to buy them back from their condition of sin, to cover their sin in the face of God's holy wrath. You make it unnecessary. Oh, you don't need that. They're enemies of the cross. Verse 19 of Philippians 3, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame. They try to put the cross of Christ to shame and it becomes their shame who set their mind on earthly things. If you just live your Christianity with this world as your only world that you live in, then you're going to have trouble times. See, Christianity is a faith that's connected with the future. Hence the word faith. I have faith that what Jesus said, he did. And what he secured with what he did on that cross has a future reality for me that is not here like this. 
is a future hope. Without it, you're hopeless. But with it, you have hope. Listen to me. There's a lot of great stuff in this world. It was a beautiful morning this morning, wasn't it? I could almost smell fall in the air. Not yet crisp, but it's coming. I can look to the mountains that God has made and say, oh, glory be to God. And by the way, he put horses on earth. And that's pretty fine. And kittens. And puppies. And steak dinners. It's a good life. But that's not enough, is it? It's not enough for fulfillment, is it? I've had hundreds of steak dinners. And I'm not satisfied. Are you? It's future. There's a kingdom comes. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done because we're kingdom waiting people. And when everything in the world goes terribly, we can say, my hope is in the Lord. My faith is in the promised kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is not all there is. I'm in trouble on time. <laughs> Laughing has got to be a sin when you do it that way. <laughs> Let me say the cross of Christ it is once for all sacrifice is what they are attacking. Shaming the efficiency of the cross hopelessly. Listen to this. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, Hebrews 9, 24, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself he's entered. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin. He's appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men once to die, how many times do you die? Once to die. It's appointed for men once to die, but after this, the judgment. That's also a promise. Verse 28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those, listen, who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. That is the efficiency of the cross. What he did once is effective forever. What he completed with his own blood took away all necessity for any future sacrifice. 
And if you think you need to sacrifice something to stay in, like doing a good work, like being baptized, by saying how many Hail Marys, by standing on your head and chanting some sort of chant that's out there, you are hopeless. But if your faith is in the one-time work of Jesus Christ, then it's rightly placed. These are not regular believers. The last thing I want you to do is start sitting in church and wondering, are they saved? What's wrong with them? They should be following Christ better maybe than one of these things the pastor talked about. That's not your job. They call themselves believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we call each other to the word of God. And when he comes, he'll sort it out. Or they'll sort themselves out. Because you see, these kinds, as John says, went out from us because they were not of us. They were not of us. But those who are of us stay. And we hold each other up. Let me finish here. Commentator of old, Lenski said, those who fell from the Son of God openly denounce and revile him before the world. And having once embraced him, they not only know him, they not only know how to do this most effectively, like a friend turned traitor, who viciously uses all that his former intimacy provides him, but do it so that men shall see what they as one-time converts of Jesus have now as disillusioned converts come to think of him. These kind of people really will be obvious. They crucify again for themselves the Son of God. And they put him to open shame. That means out in the open. They're like Judas who knew the Master most intimately and yet at the betrayal walked up to the Master and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The kiss of fellowship that was to mean peace between us became the symbol the signal for those who were massed at his back to attack Jesus. And just so we know that that wasn't man's power, in one of the Gospels, Jesus asked, Whom do you seek? And when Jesus said, I am he, all of the warriors fell down. It's hopeless to attack Jesus. There's only hope in believing in him and following after him to the impregnable city, to the promise of the kingdom to come and a new heaven 
and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and a new me and a new you. Let's pray. Lord God, undergird your word with faith. Give us trust in you and you alone in the once-for-all work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let it be to us the symbol of our hope. Let it be to us a constancy that it is effective and sufficient for us forever and for all who will believe. But Lord, we pray that those who are here who have not yet believed would see the danger of fighting against Jesus Christ, of continuing to not believe, or continuing in a state where they're faking their Christianity and faking their faith so that parents or their wife or their husband or aunts or uncles or those of the church around them will think that they're okay. I pray for them today before it's too late. That they would humble themselves before Jesus Christ. That they would see their condemning sin as deserving of eternal damnation and punishment. That they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That he stood in their place. That he sacrificed his own blood on their behalf and says to them today, come to me. Believe on me, and thou shalt be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.